Hi, everyone. I'm Ben Norton, and this is Geopolitical Economy Report. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by a scholar in China, Roland Boer, who is originally from Australia, but he's been living in China for a decade and is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at Renmin University, the People's University in Beijing. And he is an expert on socialism with Chinese characteristics. And today we're going to talk about a book that he wrote on the topic, which is called Socialism with Chinese Characteristics, A Guide for Foreigners. And in his book, Roland emphasizes the importance of reading the debate that goes on in China in the Chinese language. Unfortunately, this debate is often ignored in Western media. And in general, in the West, there's this impression, actually, Roland, I'm sure you've heard it, that China is no longer socialist. This idea that China, with the Deng Xiaoping reform starting in 1978, simply abandoned socialism and became capitalist. But you, with your book, show that that's not at all the case. In fact, China has very much developed its new form of socialism with Chinese characteristics. And I want to talk about different aspects of that. But I actually want to begin with a chapter later in your book, which is about the socialist market economy and the planned economy, the planned economic elements in China. Now, this is, I think, what confuses a lot of people because they assume that when you're talking about socialism, you're only referring to the Soviet model, which is exclusively basically a planned economy where pretty much everything in the economy was planned and state owned in China. The banking sector is state-owned. Many infrastructure companies, construction companies are state-owned. The land is state-owned. But, you know, 40% of the GDP comes from state-owned companies. About 60% of the GDP comes from companies that are not state-owned. So there are there's a socialist market economy. Can you explain how you see China's economic model, why you argue that it is indeed still socialist, and how a country can be socialist but also have a market economy? Mm. I think um, a historical perspective is a good one here um, because I was already going back to the 1930s. Now, that's very early in the piece. It was initially proposed uh, by Oscar Lange and others that you could actually have markets within a socialist system. Uh, and then this was debated quite uh, vigorously in Eastern Europe and the Eastern European socialist countries. And various ones tried different kinds of uh, market reforms. They're only fairly half-hearted. So the possibility of actually having market dynamics within a socialist system has been on the agenda for quite some time. It's been debated quite a bit as well. Um, so historically, that hasn't been a problem. China hasn't been doing anything new in the broad frame like that. The way it's done it is, of course, new. Um, there's also a crucial point here, and uh, we've we've been a bit misled in in the West anyway by um, people, the two Austrian counts. Um, usually, people don't refer to them that way. They were actually counts from the aristocracy uh, uh, von Hayek, but a very deceptive sort of comment where they uh, assumed that socialism meant a planned economy and that the word a market economy or the term market economy had to mean capitalism, a capitalist system. And this is historically completely false. You have had various types of market economies going back 
Um, at least two to 3,000 years, ancient Persia, for example, had a form of a market economy. Uh, you had it in ancient Greece and Rome. They certainly weren't capitalist economies. Greece and Rome were slave economies. So the po historical possibility of having market mechanisms within different um, economic forms or modes of production has been around for quite some time. Um, and more recently also, it's been quite possible within a socialist context. Um, now, as far as the Chinese situation is concerned, this goes back to the massive debates around the reform and opening up when um, we can maybe best the way to put this is in, in historical stages, but I guess we've got three now. The first phase from 1949 through really to the late 70s was primarily a uh, highly centralised planned economy, which produced what they call here the first economic miracle. Um, China achieved enormous, enormously from one of the poorest countries in the world to getting to a point where it was, it was uh, basically self-sufficient with food and developing a, an industrial chain. But they're also facing quite a number of contradictions, mounting contradictions with that that began to show up. Um, there was sluggish development in the, the latter years. They made some mistakes as well, and they weren't overcoming chronic problems like persistent poverty that was there, especially in the remote and rural areas. And so they were looking for a, a solution, a way to move forward. And they did it step by step, but realized that drawing on the insights from before, you could let market mechanisms uh, run within a country, a socialist country, while maintaining and in fact, strengthening and enhancing a socialist system. I think there is a crucial distinction here that we need to keep in mind. Um, they, they talk about, or they use the terminology, uh, probably best translated as a component or an institutional form within an overall system. And so you've got what you can describe as a market component a market institutional form within an overall socialist system. But importantly, you've also got planning, enhanced planning. Planning has never been given up. It's never been dispensed with. Uh, so, you know, you say, oh, well, China gave up on a planned economy and undertook a market economy. That's completely false. Economically, both components are part of the economic framework. And so we've just uh, had the um, deliberations and the beginning of the 14th five-year plan, for example. These boil down to yearly plans, and then every single component in the country has to develop yearly plans and also five-year plan with built-in flexibility for when things, when, you know, difficulties have to be met. And uh, I remember even doing this in a university environment. Um, so we had to also sort of develop that. So planning's definitely there, but it's taken on a whole new shape in its interaction with the market mechanisms. One last comment there also, when, when they're referring here to um, um, what is loosely called in, in English, say, um, private ownership, uh, there's two, gen two general terms used here. One is common or public ownership and one is non-public ownership and that's actually very important because there's quite a range of non-public um, enterprises in China. Some of them are basically collectives, 
some of them are enterprises in the countryside between villages and regional cities, which are technically not public uh, enterprises, but they're also not, as you would understand in a Western country, as a private enterprise. So they use the term non-public to describe that section of the economy. Yeah, when you mentioned that there still is planning, of course, China does have five-year plans. But in addition, you mentioned that there is planning in particular sectors. And what's been incredible in the past three years is to see the massive growth in China's automobile industry. China, in just three years, has overtaken the United States, South Korea, and Germany to become the second biggest exporter of cars on Earth. And it's expected this year to overtake Japan as the world's biggest exporter of cars. And many of those cars are electric vehicles. China has developed very inexpensive, very affordable, uh, high quality electric cars. And it's it's done so in a very short period of time, revolutionizing the global car industry. And I was doing a lot of research on this because there's a lot of reports on it in the Western press. And I found that Surprise, surprise, there is a government plan, which is known as the New Energy Vehicle Industry Development Plan from 2021 until 2035. So when you have state industrial policy, you can actually do these kinds of things, like overtake the entire global automobile industry in the matter of a few years when you know you have the resources and the ability and you can uh, put that all together with the support from the state. Um, and related to that, in your chapter on China's socialist market economy and planned economic elements, you emphasized another key element of this that's often left out of the debate, which is there's an always an emphasis on the ownership of the means of production, which is an important part of you know, the discussion of socialism. But there's a neglected emphasis on the liberation of productive forces. I'm wondering if you can talk about the role of the need to develop the productive forces and how that's part of the debate in China, going back to not just Deng Xiaoping, but going back to the revolution itself in 1949. Yeah, and that's, <clears throat> it's not just China, actually. If you look at um, other countries like Vietnam or DPRK or Laos, or in fact, um, developing countries uh, or, you know, formerly colonized countries in Africa, and etc. Um, there's always been an interest in the best way to liberate the productive forces. And there's a simple reason for that. Poverty, uh, chronic poverty. Life expectancy in China in 1949 was about 34. It's now higher than the United States, that sort of thing. So, but this is not something new. Uh, and maybe we can put it this way. If you, if you ask someone, say, from one of the de developed countries in the world, that's a, a very relative phrase, one of the few Western countries in the world, someone who knows a bit about it for a definition of socialism, they'll say the ownership of the means of production. Um, that's it, common ownership, the means of production, overcoming private ownership. And that's, that's only half true and actually distorting. You go back to the Communist Manifesto with Marx and Engels, where they talk about um, the working class appropriating by degrees the means of production from the capitalist class and holding them initially in public hands and accelerating the productive forces as rapidly as possible. Both of those are necessary, 
And both of those aren't necessarily always causally connected. You know, you can't say, well, ownership of the uh, means of production leads to a rapid increase in productive forces. There's a, a, a complex relationship between the two. So it's actually been part of the, the Marxist, the socialist project right from the beginning. And so the overemphasis on the question of ownership rather than liberating productive forces or accelerating productive forces is uh, one that's been forgotten uh, in some quarters, whereas it hasn't been forgotten in countries like China, DPRK, Vietnam, Laos, um, Cuba, we could add here as well, but uh, it's also quite a common emphasis in developing countries. Yeah, and a character who is very important to understand if we're talking about socialism with Chinese characteristics is, of course, Deng Xiaoping, who is often seen as a controversial figure. He is the one who welcomed in this era of what's known as reform and opening up. And among a lot of people on the left, he is portrayed as even potentially a counter-revolutionary figure who, who put China on the, the capitalist road if he didn't simply restore capitalism in China. Now, your book is a, a complete corrective to that argument. You point out that Deng Xiaoping, who was for decades from his youth, he was always a lifelong member of the Communist Party of China. He risked his life as a member of the Communist Party of China. And you argued that he continued being a Marxist despite his, you know, or not, not, not despite, but rather his reform and opening up was rooted in his Marxism. So I'm wondering if you can explain this complex figure, Deng Xiaoping, and what he actually meant when he called for re reform and opening up. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Deng Xiaoping was a lifelong communist. And one of the things you get thrown here thrown around sometimes is that uh, he was a so-called capitalist roader. Um, no one ever actually there's no good reason given for why Deng Xiaoping in the circle around him suddenly decided to, you know, let's say hypothetically, uh, you know, <clears throat> move towards capitalism in China. It just is some kind of vague decision that they made at some point. Um, so Mao Zedong never actually called Deng Xiaoping a capitalist roader because Mao Zedong knew very well that Deng Xiaoping was a communist and certainly not a capitalist. Uh, it was actually a term that was uh, applied to Deng Xiaoping in the difficult period after Mao Zedong's death uh, and the Gang of Four were trying to paint Deng Xiaoping and some others as capitalist roaders, this is precisely at a time when public opinion was shifting decisively towards Deng Xiaoping and those with him. Um, so it, those sorts of historical factors are important to keep in mind with, with Deng Xiaoping. Uh, a simple answer to anyone who, who thinks Deng Xiaoping isn't or wasn't a communist is read his works. That's a simple answer. Um, and you soon find out that nothing could be further from the truth. You know, Deng Xiaoping was a, a solid uh, communist all his life and certainly not a conservative or anything else like that. Also got to keep in mind something else with Deng Xiaoping. His most influential and productive period of life started in his 70s and went through to his early 90s. Now, most people in their in their 70s are thinking about taking it easy in life, uh, <laughs> not Deng Xiaoping. Um, so, <clears throat> but what, what they were faced with, uh, and I'll go back to a comment I made earlier, what they were faced with was increasingly obvious contradictions. And the core contradiction, put it in very sort of Marxist terms here, was between the 
relations of production, that is the relations between uh, people working in different sectors of the economy and the productive forces. Now, all of the forces that are there, the, the natural resources that you've got, industrial resources, uh, and so on and so forth. And there was an increasing contradiction and contradictions emerging uh, between those two. And the basic problem was that the productive forces were lagging behind, lagging behind what the people needed and the people wanted. And they were looking for solutions to, uh, if you like, break the deadlock, to to overcome the the, the blockages that were stopping uh, further economic development taking place. They'd achieved a fair bit, but there was still an awful long way to go. Uh, and when Deng Xiaoping, he never actually was general secretary of, of the party, when uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, was able to start sort of uh, exercising sort of leadership functions, and as always, got to remember this, it's not an individual, it's a collective leadership that does these things right through to, to today. Um, then they could start exploring avenues and they took it very carefully uh, because there was still still a, a distinct feeling or an awareness that China was still relatively weak economically and therefore relatively uh, had a relatively low standing on the international stage. Um, but it was, look, an in-depth consideration of the Marxist, whole Marxist tradition, uh, looking at examples uh, from different parts of the world in order to find a particular model or particular approach that suited China's conditions at that time. It wasn't easy, and you can see this um, showing up in the materials. I mean, they had to deal with a lot of hesitation, a lot of criticisms. Um, a lot of people felt that they shouldn't be pursuing such a path, and it took quite a bit of persuading to get people on board and to realise that this actually was the way forward on the socialist road. Um, I mean, you know, Deng Xiaoping was the one who proposed the, the, the four cardinal principles that uh, still uh, are here today, that it was the, the path of Marxism, Leninism and Mao Zedong thought. It was always pursuing the socialist road, the leadership of the CPC and so on. And they were the principles, they were the principles with which they developed the reform and opening up process. And it was reform, reform internally, um, and also opening up to the rest of the world in the process, and also engaging, learning, uh, studying, uh, cooperating where possible in order to move forward. Uh, one other point um, I'd add here, uh, Deng Xiaoping's not the first, but he emphasised that what is the necessary foundation for the eventual shift to communism? And that might be still hundreds of years away, who knows? What is the necessary uh, foundation for it? Well, if communism is from each according to ability to each according to need, then you need a very high level of productive forces and economic activity in order to enable you to do that. And that's the task of the socialist path, is to build up that profound economic foundation so that the eventual transition to communism can take place. Uh, and as Deng Xiaoping said, poor socialism is not socialism at all. 
because there were some around the Gang of Four who were trying to say that they do need to settle for poor socialism. He said, poor socialism is not socialism whatsoever. Yeah, that, that point is so crucial. And I think it's something that a lot of people in the global north don't take into consideration, that if you have a, an underdeveloped country, a society that was exploited by colonialism and imperialism, in the case of China, the century of humiliation in which there were numerous colonial powers that devastated the country in 1900, there were eight imperialist countries, including the United States and other Western nations in Japan that invaded and occupied Beijing. And in the, those circumstances, a country can't develop socialism if, for instance, it doesn't have advanced manufacturing. How are you going to get that technology? You have to import it from the capitalist nations. How are you going to import it? You have to get access to foreign currency. How are you going to get access to the foreign currency? You have to export raw materials and agricultural products. That's not a way to develop socialism. So, I mean, if you look at the conditions in countries like China and Vietnam, many countries in Latin America and Africa, it makes perfect sense that new forms of economic development have to be created. And in your chapter, Roland, on reform and opening up, you also talk about the poverty reduction program, which has been absolutely incredible. I mean, people, I think, haven't wrapped their, outside of China. Many people have not wrapped their mind around the fact that more than 800 million people in China have been lifted out of absolute poverty. That population is bigger than most countries on earth. 800 million people in, in the span of just 70 years, really. And if you compare that to the situation, for instance, in India, you can see clearly the difference between a socialist revolution and a country that didn't have a socialist revolution. India got independence from British colonialism in 1947, two years before the victory of the Chinese revolution on October 1st, 1949. And yet we see horrific poverty across India. It's still an, a systemic problem that is really just uh, it tears your heart out. I mean, to see the poverty levels in India. And yet in China, absolute poverty has been eliminated. And you also mentioned that not only have 800 million people been lifted out of absolute poverty, but 500 million people are also part of what is called the middle income group. And you also make it clear that we shouldn't call that a middle class, but rather a middle income group. So can you talk about the poverty reduction program in China and how it's related to the reform and opening up process? Uh, yeah. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah, look, um, <clears throat> well, let's start with Deng Xiaoping on this one, you know, when they were debating these issues. He was asked a question, I think, by an international reporter about whether China was taking the capitalist road or not. And he said, look, if China took the capitalist road, about 10% of the population would become wealthy. 90% of the population would not and would remain in, po in poverty. That was simply not an option as far as China is concerned. Um, it also goes back to one of the, the, the fundamental aspects that arisen from countries that have... Um, uh, in the past uh, and presently uh, worked to uh, construct socialism or be on the socialist road, uh, and that is the right to economic well-being for everyone. It's a fundamental right um, that is there, and that, that means everyone. Now, initially, you know, it was, um, in a sense, the easier uh, parts, if I can put it that way, in the areas typically the cradle of China's uh, civilization, 
the southeastern parts where 95% of the population lives. Um, but there were intractable problems, especially in the more remote areas uh, in the northwestern part, uh, parts of half really of the country, um, where most of the minority nationalities live and sort of uh, chronic poverty remained a significant issue there and was the, if I use that term, the toughest nut to crack. And it needed new approaches to be able to deal with that. And it was very comprehensive, uh, focusing on what was needed in each particular area and getting each community, each mountain village, each regional city, each sub-district and so on, to discuss and debate and adopt the best policies for poverty reduction in their area. Uh, but sort of, now there's a couple of things here. So abolishing absolute poverty is one thing. Um, it's another thing entirely to ensure that people don't slip back into poverty and that that's a big focus. But the other one to keep moving forward, not to sort of rest on your laurels. And it's one of the things that's, that's pretty typical here, very typical, even no matter how good something might be, it always can be improved. Uh, and so, you know, that's uh, and big focus on the rural areas, also young people um, with skills, with training in necessary areas, volunteering to go and work in crucial areas in the countryside, all that sort of thing. It, it's an extraordinary process, very targeted very focused, owned by the people themselves in the places rather than being told what they had to do. Um, it is mind-boggling and people say, no, surely that can't be possible. Uh, you know, we're always going to have the poor with us kind of thing. Surely there are some poor people somewhere in China. Um, I Look, um, you know, if someone does sort of slip and they keep monitor these things very closely, if someone for some reason, accident, illness, something else, misfortune in a family or community does slip back into poverty, <clears throat> then measures are in, brought into play to overcome that problem. So, yeah, there's there are a number of aspects uh, about all of that. Uh, it is something that will take a while, I think, to sink in and the implications. I forget the exact figure for the total world population, but it is something like seven or eight out of ten uh, people who have been lifted out of poverty in the last century are actually in China. Yeah, and something I found interesting in your discussion of the reform and opening up in your book is the dialectical relationship between the collective and the individual. And you quote this term that's used in China, eating from one big pot. That's a term, that the, the metaphor that's used, one big pot and that refers back to the collective farm system. So can you talk about the debate in China about this relationship between the collective and the individual? Well, the shorthand on the collective and in, in the individual is that the individual flourishes only in and through the collective experience. Um, it's not that the collective is a, a, a collection or an aggregate of individuals who have to find some way to get on together. Um, and you can only achieve your sort of personal uh, development through that particular collective experience. It doesn't mean that the individual is uh, obliterated, as it were. And that, that was one of the, the issues with eating from one big pot, um, was this idea that 
say we're on a collective farm and everyone's supposed to do work, but some people do more and some people do less. And so, but everybody has, you know, can eat the same as everyone else. And the problem they started to find with that was that those who were sort of doing more work than others said, well, what's the point in doing more work if, if, if some of them are some, you know, such and such is not, then I'm not going to bother either. <clears throat> so then um, there was the development of the household responsibility system where people were encouraged to, to find means um, to produce beyond uh, what they needed to provide to the village and then also to, um, you know, the state and so on. And that if they did so, they were actually allowed to sell that. And that was seen as an incentive for the individuals uh, to move forward uh, in that process. Um, that, that notion, however, that I was mentioning before, that the individual finds fulfilment and flourishes uh, through and in the collective experience that I mean, that's something, of course, that comes out of the the whole sort of Marxist or the socialist background, but it is also very deep within the Chinese cultural tradition. Um, for example, there's a common four character phrase that comes from uh, Confucius Analects: um, "Harmony without the sun being the same." It's translated in different ways. So, harmony actually means that you have. Uh, a harmony between different parts. It's a musical metaphor, obviously, um, but not being the same. That doesn't mean that everything and everyone has to be exactly the same as everything else. So it is a way of being together in a harmonious way without being the same as everyone else. So that goes way, way back in the Chinese cultural tradition. And it's one of the many reasons why, why Marxism actually did take root uh, among the common people in China. Uh, back already a hundred years ago. And an another thing that you acknowledge in the chapter on reform and opening up is the contradictions. There, there have been contradictions and problems. So you talk about the wild 90s, for instance. And as an example of some of the problems, you talk about the bad working conditions, unbalanced income distribution, environmental problems, and corruption. And Xi Jinping, since he came to power in 2013, President Xi has emphasized combating a lot of these problems, emphasizing the importance of common prosperity and that that really is reducing inequality, also improving working conditions and combating corruption. In fact, Xi has been leading an anti-corruption campaign. So I'm just going to uh, quote a chapter, uh, uh, a line from your book here. You write, while some foreigners saw these problems as systemic and thus sign of the capitalist road, the Chinese answer drew direct, directly from Marxist dialectical analysis. The problems were incidental and could be overcome not by retreating from them, but by deepening reform in a socialist direction. So maybe you can talk about the wild 90s. And I believe I read that you said you've been living on and off and visiting on and off China for about 15 years or maybe even longer. So how have you seen China change in, in that time period? 16 years now. Yeah, well, see, when I was first sort of here, and this was a wild 90s, but it also had a flow on into the first decade of 2000s, um, it showed up at all sorts of levels. At an economic level, uh, it was very chaotic. Uh, there was a large grey area in the law. Um, and uh, plenty of room to move in that area, if I can put it that way. Um, 
there was a lot of discussion about things like the left behind children um, and because you had people of working age going into the cities to work, uh, leaving behind their children with elderly grandparents to take care of them, sometimes couldn't take care of them properly, but also the working conditions for these, these I mean, they call literally, they call migrant workers in English, but th that evokes people coming from outside the country. What they refer to is farmer workers, so going to the city to work. Um, th let's stick with that issue for a moment, because when I was first here and talking with people, that was a great concern. And that was a reflection of the significant differences between the city and countryside in terms of economic opportunities for people. Um, there's been a massive focus on providing for people who are doing that adequate and safe and properly paid for uh, work. Also ensuring that people can take uh, people who are in that, that particular group, it is a recognised category of, of labour, of worker in China, so that they can partake fully in China's socialist democratic system, uh, but also that their, their rights and their, their job are fully realised. But the other big issue here, of course, was to make sure that the children were taken care of properly either through enabling the children to move with the parents of the cities while they're working there, but more importantly, actually providing work opportunities for the parents of the children in the country areas where they were. And that's been part of the poverty alleviation program. It's to get the working age adults to stay there and develop enterprises um, in their own area in light of their own conditions so that there's not that need to go and work in all sorts of jobs in the cities and so on and so forth. So that was something that I, there's a lot of discussion about that and great concern about those sorts of issues in the 90s. Um, there's been a focus on redressing um, long-standing issue that people that lost their jobs at that time, for example, without compensation. But I also, you mentioned 2012 and Xi Jinping and the Central Committee um, it's now, that period now is really called the new era. And so the big focus was on deepening reform as a way of dealing with the problems. The problems were felt not to be the outcome of the process of reform and opening up in the sense that this was the necessary end where they would go. They were seen as problems that had arisen, contradictions that had arisen in the process of reform which needed to be solved in some way and the need to move forward. And so deepening reform was sorting out some of the economic bottlenecks, supply-side reform. You see this now if your example with electric car development and so on. Um, the anti-corruption campaign, that was all about uh, trust, party and people. Uh, there's a massive gap developing between party and people over those sorts of issues. And that's that's an ongoing thing, but now it it, it is pretty much under control uh, in as I speak. So there's not really a problem. But also, um, as a result, the level of, of trust in governance, um, appreciation of what the Communist Party has done, and also the pride of party members in the party has been restored. Uh, and that's been a, a rather extraordinary achievement in not much over 10 years, a little tiny little bit over 10 years. Um, so um, there's much more that could be said on that, but I certainly have noticed the changes. Maybe I can add one more thing. When, when I was talking with people 
in the first few years here at an ideological level, if we can use that term, about where China was going. There seemed to be a lot of options on the table. Some were talking about a kind of neo-Confucianism. Others were talking about the need to move to a sort of bourgeois liberalization uh, and so on and so forth. In other words, it wasn't clear to people where China was going. Now it's very, very clear. There's no question about that. Um, so that period of uncertainty and, and ideological disarray uh, is certainly in the past. And, and speaking of that, I, I, like you said earlier, I don't want to make everything about the individual leadership, right? Because saying that you know, China was simply completely ruled by Deng in one moment, and now it's completely ruled by Xi. I mean, that obviously is a gross simplification. We're talking about a communist party, the Communist Party of China, that has 90 million members, a very advanced state apparatus with many different forms of local governance, and in fact, more autonomy for a lot of different regions than, in fact, in many Western so-called democracies. So it's a very complex system. But all of that said, how crucial do you think the leadership of Xi has been in this new direction that you're talking about and, and reasserting the socialist direction? Clearly, that's been something that Xi has been emphasizing for the past decade. Do you think that in that sense that he has been an absolutely critical figure in the history of Chinese socialism? Uh, he was certainly the person, the general secretary the party needed. Uh, but I'd also emphasize it was also the central committee that the country and the party needed in that um, all of these things are things that come from the central committee and deliberated in the central committee through its meetings, plenary meetings and Politburo meetings uh, and so on. Um, just uh, if I can sort of answer your question anecdotally, it, it took about five years, I think, for generally quite lazy observers of China to figure out that Xi Jinping and the Communist Party were absolutely serious about Marxism. Because, um, you know, they didn't pay much attention to it in the first five years. And it was really at the party's 19th Congress in 2017. And I was here during the Congress and listened to uh, Xi Jinping's three-hour speech uh, in which that became then known as uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. And then uh, the, the party itself sort of then said, well, Xi Jinping thought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. It was really from that uh, 19th Congress that, that observers in other parts of the world suddenly realised, oh, ah, Xi Jinping, Central Committee and Communist Party are absolutely serious about Marxism and they're absolutely serious about socialism. And they started to try and figure out what was going on. There was sort of, oh, now we've got, we've got a problem here. You know, some thought there was a problem with the Communist Party that was actually on the socialist road. Um, but it's, it's meant to, it's also led to debates in Western countries about all sorts of things and so on. That's all been a result of uh, the leadership in the last 10 years. Uh, but I, you've also seen a very important uh, development in that, that uh, as China has emerged and in purchasing power parity, if we use that 
more accurate form of GDP. It is the largest economy in the world. Um, it's also stepped onto the world stage, but in light of its own traditions and so on. It will take a while for, for um, people to understand it, but it's interesting to note that just in the last month, we have had uh, uh, Macron here in Beijing. Uh, we've had Lula in Beijing. Uh, we also had a visit from the German foreign minister whom they assessed to be utterly and thoroughly incompetent um, when here. Um, so you've got, you know, that's been another di dimension of it, uh, stepping onto the world stage and stepping actually onto the centre of the world stage. And that has been a noticeable development in the last 10 years. And they're doing it in light of China's long cultural tradition and how China can contribute to what they call here a new form of human civilization. Well, another important part of your book on socialism with Chinese characteristics is socialist democracy. And of all of the aspects of China, this probably is the most distorted outside of the country, especially in the West now with the kind of new Cold War hysteria and the propaganda constantly portraying China as authoritarian in scare quotes. However, as you point out in your book, China has a system of socialist democracy. Also, has, it has been referred to as full process or whole process people's democracy. And you, you stress that there are seven different components of Chinese socialist democracy. Electoral democracy, which would surprise a lot of people. Consultative democracy. Grassroots democracy minority nationalities policy, rule of law, leadership of the Communist Party, and human rights. Now, in terms of electoral democracy, you, you, you point out, and this would surprise many Western critics of China, you point out that, you know, in Western bourgeois capitalist so-called democracies, electoral democracy is the only thing that's actually considered democratic. You point out that there is a form of electoral democracy in China through the People's Congresses in which every eligible Chinese citizen can stand for election and be elected for the lower level People's Congresses. And then the higher level representatives are elected from the lower level People's Congresses and it goes up from there. So that's one element of the socialist democracy in China. And by the way, for again, for Western critics of China, they always say, you know, the party state. And yes, the Communist Party of China is the leadership in, in China, but there actually are other parties as well. So maybe you can talk about all of the aspects that make up this complex system of socialist democracy or whole process people's democracy in China. Yeah, it's, it's um, I think it's something that, that people say in, in used to a kind of Western style capitalist democracy where it's a focus on elections between political parties that seem to be different, but end up not being that different at all from one another. Um, and that in that context, everything is a political football. It's tossed back and forth it, it, and with election cycles, it, um, it leads to short termism and so on, as it's sometimes called, it's one day democracy. People get to vote every three or four or five years and then that's it. You've got no role to play in it whatsoever. Um, it's, I want to emphasise that politicised form, and it's very difficult for those who have grown up in a Western country to get used to, to, to understand how much that politicisation 
influences the way people look at the world. And by politicisation, I mean antagonistic um, relations on all sorts of issues, whether it's public transport, health, economic policy, you name it. Um, it's very antagonistic. And it means that people who can play that antagonistic political game can get elected as long as they have a well-heeled propaganda machine behind them. What happens when you have elections in a country like China which are not antagonistic in that way? Uh, Marx already pointed this out in his notes on Bakunin. Um, he said you'd have a form of depoliticized elections. Now, what does that mean? It means that you would have elections where it's not antagonistic between candidates, but it's based on their competence and experience. Now, you think it would be common sense that someone would be elected who was the most competent and experienced person for that position. Now, that's how it works in a Chinese situation. Of course, it takes education of the population and get people used to this kind of thing, but there's very robust public sessions where they analyse candidates' achievements and competencies um, and so on. And then when it comes around for election to the locals, local um, people's congresses in countryside, in city regions, etc., 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 people are elected on the basis of competence and experience. Um, now, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that makes a lot of sense because then you end up with people who actually can do the job. And then when time for re-election comes up, they're assessed on whether they have actually done the job properly or not. And if not, they're not re-elected. If they, are, if they have, they're re-elected. So that, that's how the electoral system works. It's depoliticized. It's based on competence and experience. What's the role of the other political parties? There's eight other political parties, but there's also other groups. There's also religious groups. There's representatives from um, uh, Islam, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, uh, and so on. Their role is a heavily engaged consultative process. And when you speak of consultative democracy and electoral democracy, they're integrated and interrelate in so many ways. Um, but these are institutionalised in the People's Political Consultative Conferences. Um, and every single piece of legislation has to go through that for extensive consultation, suggestion, debate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, that's how the, the, um, the function of the other political parties works. It's not an antagonistic system in that respect. It's based on, as I said before, competence, experience, but also consultation plays a massive role in all sorts of ways. Just one small example to add to that, there's many other components to it, I guess, but um, since I didn't mention this in the book, but I have actually paid attention to it since, uh, there's been a more recent development in what they call uh, legislative contact points. And at the, um, the uh, National People's Congress earlier this year, these were all sort of uh, formalized through pieces of legislation themselves, but they were under trial period. And that's what they'll do with these things. They'll go into trial for a while, test them out, see what can be fixed before deciding how to move forward. Uh, how do these work? Okay, so they have a number of levels of 
of contact points. The key ones are the grassroots contact points uh, all across the country, where uh, there are two basic features of these. One is where proposals for legislation can first be put forward. And the other one, relatedly, is, of course, for consultation on drafts of legislation. So you've also got this element of the democratic process. The legislation is something that, put it this way, it comes from the people and then once it's legislated, it goes to the people. But if people can see that there's a piece of legislation that's come up from an initial suggestion from a contact point, has worked its way through the system, it's been debated, it's been enhanced, drafts have been put forward, sent back, and so on and so forth, and it becomes a piece of legislation at the National People's Congress, people are obviously going to own that because they can see that it's a suggestion that's actually come from the bottom up, if we use that term. So that's another feature um, of the democratic process that uh, takes place in China, apart from all the others. Yeah, I should point out that there was a study done by basically a Western NATO-backed group, Alliance of Democracies, which is run by the former Secretary General of NATO, Anders Fogh-Rasmussen, and they did a study looking at countries around the world and their population's perception of whether or not their country is democratic. And they found that in the United States, only 49% of people consider the government to be democratic, which I mean, I'm surprised it's even that high. In, 40, in France, only 47% of people considered the government to be democratic. In China, it was the highest rate in the entire world. It was 83%. And in Vietnam, it was also the second highest rate in the world, very high. So that might surprise a lot of Western critics of these countries, but it shows that these systems of socialist democracy are actually more democratic than the capitalist so-called you know, democracies in the West. I'm not surprised at all, um, but obviously Anas uh, Fos uh, um, Rasmussen's group might be a bit surprised. Uh, maybe they'll have to change their criteria to change the results in the next round. Um, but the important thing, obviously, is that the people in, in China and Vietnam, for example, see it that way. And um, that's a lot of people. And uh, they're certainly not stupid about these sorts of things. I mean, this, <clears throat> this actually raises another question that's come to the fore uh, more recently is actually with Xi Jinping's uh, speech on whole process, people's democracy. Because um, often the emphasis is that that countries take different uh, forms, political forms, depending upon their histories, uh, their cultural traditions and so on. And the saying, only the wearer knows if the shoe fits. Now, that's, of course, true. Okay. But there's also a questions being raised about a qualitative question about which democratic form is more genuinely democratic. That's actually now been coming to the fore in the last couple of years, two or three years. So it's raising the stakes. Uh, and it does actually go back to the old, old sort of sense that socialism in the end run is superior to capitalism. That would also apply to a socialist democratic system. So we're starting to see some of those uh, elements coming to the fore now. Um, and that also indicates a distinct um, uh, confidence uh, on the international stage to point out, well, uh, the people say so, and uh, we think so, uh, that this whole process, people's democracy, socialist democracy, that we are still developing, 
we're not at the end of it yet, we're still developing and building up and so on, is qualitatively superior to the forms that arose initially in Western Europe and then were in some other parts of the world. Um, I don't think we should be too surprised about the low scores in places like the US and France. Um, but um, it's interesting that, um, well, I can say this, my wife is actually Danish background, so Anders Fogh Rasmussen uh, is a well-known figure in Denmark, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I can say, you know, uh, in the United States, studies show that routinely in in elections, in congressional elections, more than 90% of the candidates who have more funding win. So it's really the, the best democracy in scare quotes that you can buy. That, that's what a bourgeois democracy is. But um, I don't want to keep you too long because I know it's late over there in Beijing. My last question, Roland, is about something you talk about in the introduction to your book, which is about what you refer to as the profound ignorance about Chinese political culture outside of much of China, including by so-called experts on China, especially in the West. You know, you have this, this cottage industry of so-called China experts who actually, the reason they're considered China experts is because they simply spout anti-China propaganda that's convenient to the Western ruling class, right? Um, Gordon Shang is considered a China expert after having claimed for decades that China's one day away from collapsing. But anyway, the point is that you, you wrote in your book that many non-Chinese scholars do not have access to these sophisticated debates that have gone on in China since they are unable to read Chinese sources. Now, you've been visiting and living in China for 16 years. You speak Chinese. You teach at Redmond University. So you're aware, very well aware of this political debate that goes on in China. Can we conclude talking about the vibrant political culture and debate inside China and how there are differences and, um, you know, there are different views that go along with this country that is 1.4 billion people. And yet in the West, we just see this presentation as if China is some authoritarian monolith. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I simply can't see how anyone would believe that, that somehow 1.4 billion people all uh, would be told what to say uh, and not say anything else. I mean, it's it's an extremely vibrant uh, situation. People are very vocal at all sorts of levels about things. Um, and, you know, whether it's, it's, it's a local issue about uh, a building uh, permit or something like that that hasn't gone through the, the proper processes to debates on the, the, the massive questions that go on. Um, you know, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> I'm um, working on a new project now, which is on the history of Marxist philosophy in China since 1978, because there's simply, to my knowledge, nothing available in English or any other Western language on that question. And they've gone through phases of huge debates about all sorts of things. So um, the, uh, the debate in the 80s, for example, what's the criterion of truth? Um, and the, you know, various positions were put forward on this until it was sort of came to the point where practice is the basis of the criterion of truth. But that took about 10 years of furious debate between people about different, different approaches to that question. Um, the other question on development of, of rule of law uh, in the 80s as well was how to understand a socialist rule of law 
as it was being developed. And there were various proposals put forward with that. People range from saying, well, we don't need a rule of law because it's a socialist country to saying, well, we've got enough here. We have a legal system to others saying, well, actually, underlying the legal system, we need to develop a rule of law. That's not something that comes from the West. Um, the examples could uh, continue, but a more recent debate that is actually very interesting in the last five or six years, and I've uh, been asked to give a lecture on this um, next semester, a public lecture on it, is the question of justice. What does justice mean? What does justice mean for individuals? What does justice mean for a society? What does justice mean in light of China's uh, tradition? And what does a Marxist approach to justice mean? Uh, all these sorts of questions are still uh, a hot topic, as they say here, with, with people sort of writing uh, pieces, emphasising different perspectives on the question of justice and how justice actually works internationally. How does justice work between countries internationally so that it works properly? So these are quite substantive questions. It sounds like an abstract con con concept, but it actually has uh, very concrete um, um, outcomes uh, in light of uh, global developments. Well, I do want to let you go to sleep because I know it's it's very late for you in, in Beijing. I want to thank you, Roland Bower. Uh, we were speaking with a professor at Renmin University. He has been living and uh, visiting China now for 16 years, originally from Australia. And Roland is the author of several books, including today we were discussing his 2021 book, Socialism with Chinese Characteristics, A Guide for Foreigners. In 2023, this year, he also published a book called Socialism in Power on the History and Theory of Socialist Governance. And he has several other books and many articles and book chapters. Maybe, Roland, I can bring you back sometime to talk about your latest book. Um, as, as we wrap up here, are there any final thoughts that you want to share? And maybe if people who want to find more of your research, maybe you can provide uh, a link or uh, a way people can can read your work? Maybe I'll finish with two um, points uh, here. If you are actually interested in understanding China a little bit better and you haven't been to China, get here. It's as simple as that and try and spend a bit of time here. Uh, the reason I say that there is a joke that they tell here is how do you become a China expert in a Western country? Uh, never live in China, never visit China, never speak <laughs> to a Chinese person, don't speak a word of Chinese and be preferably white and Western, then you're a China expert. So if you really want to know a bit more about it, read up, yeah, but get here, come here and uh, see for yourself. Um, and I think on that note, uh, thanks very much, Ben. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you, Roland.